Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington, and joining me now from New York is Law360 editor-at-large and co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty okay. Uh, It's the big end-of-term push is finally upon us. Uh, We saw the court hand down five opinions on Monday, and we're going to be getting into two of those. Um, And just you know, since there's a lot happening this week, we're just going to kind of get right into it. Um, Arguably, the biggest opinion of the week was a unanimous decision that essentially keeps Puerto Rico's $125 billion bankruptcy on track. Um, So this opinion, uh, written by Justice Breyer, basically says that Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board, the board that's essentially overseeing the whole island's reorganization, is legal and valid. Yeah, this is the big Puerto Rico bankruptcy case that we've been watching and we talked about when it came up for oral arguments earlier this term. Um, so the court decides on Monday that uh, the basically the entity that's in charge of steering the island through this huge bankruptcy, I think, you know, the largest in American history, is constitutionally valid. It's legal. So can you give us a little bit of background here about why this is important and set up the case a little bit for us? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of backstory, back in 2016, I think, as as many remember, Congress passed the PROMESA Act, which uh, basically created the board. And the president appointed the seven members and authorized the board to, you know, handle the bankruptcy and other matters dealing with the reorganization. Um, Now, there's a lot of stakeholders in a $125 billion bankruptcy. (laughs) You know, hedge funds, unions, you name it. You know, everyone's been fighting over just who's getting the money. And there's a lot of underlining debates over the sovereignty of Puerto Rico and its complicated territory relationship with the U.S. Um, So, you know, these cases in particular, the creditors who were suing um, argued that the appointments violated the appointments clause of the Constitution because they weren't first approved by Congress. So the president, you know, the president named them, but they weren't, you know, um, authorized by federal lawmakers. So if I can just jump in, the creditors basically are unhappy with what the board did, right? And so they they create, they brought this legal challenge to the structure of the board, essentially. They wanted more yes. money than they actually got or under the plan. Yeah. And, you know, in in the First Circuit, um, they basically got a, a, a bit of a win in that the First Circuit held that the creditors were right, that the board member selection violated the appointments clause. But they had kind of a, a weird opinion where they said, but, you know, they are basically de facto officers and they should keep going and, and doing what they're doing with the bankruptcy. Um, so as I, I, you know, I think we were we were talking about back in October, you know, the justices on the Supreme Court really just, though, came down to the question of, you know, are these officers of the U.S., these board members, or are they part of Puerto Rico's territorial government? Um, And on Monday, the opinion basically said that because the duties of the officers are primarily local duties, um, they are not officers of the United States within the meaning of the Appointments Clause. So the justices... You know, they took what the First Circuit did, which I think nobody liked, and they kind of distilled it down to this very basic question. You know, were the powers that the board had federal or were they local? And they said they were local, so they didn't have to be, the members of the board didn't have to be Senate approved. Frankly, I thought it was a cleaner opinion than the First Circuit one. Like, it was much more clear cut than than that, the, the lower court opinion. 
Right, but there were some other opinions. It wasn't just a unanimous decision. I mean, this one was argued months ago. It took a long time for the court to come out with even this simple answer. So can you kind of dive into what some of the other justices had to say beyond just Justice Breyer's opinion for the court? So there were two concurring opinions. Uh, Justice Thomas took issue with basically how the majority got to the decision. He agreed with it, but he would have gone a different way. It wasn't a question of whether... They do primarily local duties or national duties. He thought that they were authorized under a different article um, to be like territorial officers. So a classic but, Thomas concurrence. Like, I don't agree classic. with what you how you got there, but I agree <laughs> with the end result. <laughs> exactly. But I thought the most interesting uh, concurrence uh, came from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who is obviously of Puerto Rican heritage. Um, you know, and she, while she agreed with the majority... She said she only agreed because the parties didn't raise this other bigger issue that she has concerns about. Um, And and basically, you know, she's looking back at this self-governance compact from 60 years ago that gave Puerto Rico these certain rights to to govern itself. Um, And she says that that compact raises some issues with what these board members who have been appointed by the president of the United States, whether there is a concern that that compact is not being clearly executed on, um, you know, and and whereas the creditors here in this in this case had been saying the issue is that Congress didn't authorize the board members, uh, Justice Sotomayor raised the issue that they were not elected or approved by the people of Puerto Rico. That's a really interesting point. So she has a totally different take on it. You know, it's not whether it was Senate approved or not. It was the sovereignty issue. And I, I really found compelling this one part of the opinion where she says, you know, she points out what the board's actually done. She says, you know, the board's ordered pensions to be reduced by as much as 8.5 percent, um, which she says threatens the sole source of income for thousands of Puerto Rico's poor and elderly. And she says other proposed cuts take aim at the, an already depleted healthcare and educational services. And then she says, it's under the yoke of such austerity measures that the island's 3.2 million citizens now chafe. So that's that's kind of a totally different direction that she was taking the case. And I think she was a little bit disappointed to see that the uh, the petitioners here didn't you know raise frame the case in that way. Yeah, and I mean, look, sovereignty issues have been part of Puerto Rico's long history with the U.S. for decades now. It's not an issue that I think is is going to go away. It'll be interesting to see if anyone kind of takes up uh, Justice Sotomayor's, uh, you know, the hint here to, to, to try attacking this from this way. Um, but I think at least for now, it, it looks like the, the, you know, the bankruptcies uh, got a green light to keep going. Turning now to another opinion that the court issued on Monday, uh, we're going to talk about the case Thole versus U.S. Bank. It's a case involving uh, pension funds, and we have a special guest on, uh, Law360's senior benefits reporter, Emily Brill, to kind of walk us through this opinion. Uh, Welcome to the show, Emily. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So the Supreme Court on Monday threw out a proposed $750 million class action against U.S. Bank and others for allegedly mismanaging retirees' pension funds. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of background about this case, how it came up to the Supreme Court? 
Yeah, totally. So um, the suit was filed in 2013 um, by a group of U.S. bank retirees against the company. Um, They accused the company of making uh, risky investment decisions that caused the pension plan to lose uh, $750 million between 2007 and 2010. Um, and those decisions caused the plan to become underfunded. But um, a year after the retiree sued in 2014, um, U.S. Bank transferred $311 million into the pension plan, meaning that it was no longer underfunded. And then they said that the workers didn't have the grounds to sue because if the plan wasn't underfunded, they'd still get their normal pension checks every month. Um, so the decision um, made it all the way up to the Supreme Court on um, the issue of whether um, pension plan participants have the right to sue pension plans over management decisions um, if the plan is fully funded. Right. I understand this comes down to the difference between like a fixed plan um, where you're you know entitled to a certain amount of money under like a contract versus mm-hmm. um, a, like a 401k where basically you pay into it and the plan is then managed. So can you kind of break down those differences and you know how common the former are these kind of defined mm-hmm. benefit plans as I understand they're called? Right. Yeah. So a traditional pension plan that just gives like guarantees somebody a specific amount of money every month is called a defined benefit plan. Those used to be way more popular in America, but they've become less so over the years. I mean, that's like accelerated um, since like the 90s. So in 1998, um, 59% of Fortune 500 companies offered pension plans. But by 2017, only 16% of those companies offered them. Um, and 401k plans, which are also called uh, defined contribution plans, um, have become much more popular. And the difference is that um, 401k plans shift the risk of um, investing from the company to the worker because um, with a pension plan, the worker gets a defined benefit no matter how like the investments are performing. But with a 401k plan, the amount you get is directly related to how the investments perform. So what exactly did the court say in its ruling on Monday? What were some of the big takeaways? So um, the majority of the court, um, the five conservative justices, sided with U.S. Bank. Um, they So the ruling was in U.S. Bank's favor. Then they accepted the argument that um, workers don't have standing to sue pension plans if the plans are fully funded. And they also included some language in the decision um, that is going to make it hard to sue pension plans at all, even if the plan is underfunded. Um And they suggested that um, workers and retirees who participate in pension plans that are insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corps, which is the federal government's um, insurance program for pension plans, um, might not have standing to sue at all. Because um, like, even if the plan is underfunded and can't pay them, the PBGC could then step in and pay them um, if the plan uh, goes bankrupt. That's really interesting. So the court basically says, like, regardless of how the investments are managed, because you're kind of contractually, you know, entitled to a certain amount of money um, that you don't have standing to sue. But I understand, um, you know, the, the four uh, liberal justices saw things pretty differently. And, and, and I think, you know, their argument was, uh, you know, well, obviously, they have to be able to vindicate and, and make sure that there's some money in the pot so that they'll actually get it. Can you kind of walk us through the legal arguments that uh, Justice Sotomayor um, wrote in her dissent on behalf of the uh, four liberal justices on the court? 
Yeah, so the um, the four liberal justices said that um, ERISA, which is the big um, benefits law, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, um, gives pension plan participants the right to challenge how their plan is being managed, if it's being mismanaged, and putting their um, pensions at risk. Um, and they said that the majority's decision is improperly trying to take that right away. And this could potentially have, you know, it could close the courthouse to a number of pensioners around the country. I think millions is what Justice Sotomayor says, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <I could. laughs> this one kind of caught me by surprise Monday. Um, it, it's one of those cases that comes up at the court from time to time where maybe people don't expect it to be as contentious as it is in the ultimate decision. Is that common for some of these uh, cases involving, you know, pension funds and, and litigation involving ERISA? Um, it's actually not the most common, um, often ERISA cases that make it all the way to the Supreme Court are on um, s- somewhat small technical issues and the whole court comes together regardless of um, affiliation. Um, for example, earlier this year in a Supreme Court ruling um, in a case against Intel, um, they all ruled unanimously um, that the uh, statute of limitations for certain types of ERISA suit should be six years rather than three years. Um, that's what we what we more typically see when it comes to ERISA suits. But um, this one is potentially kind of a harbinger of how the court may rule in ERISA suits going forward because there are a lot of um, contentious ERISA issues coming to the court now, um, and there are also cases that kind of pit like really strongly pit the company side and company interests against like worker interests. Um, So we might be seeing more divided um, rulings on ERISA going forward. That's interesting that not even ERISA is is safe from the court's very, you know, hard uh, split here between the conservative majority and liberal uh, minority here. But uh, thanks for coming on to talk about this today, uh, Emily. We really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having me. So before we wrap up for today, there were uh, a few other notable issues that that have popped up, um, and we wanted to talk about them. You know, the court didn't take up any new petitions this week, but it did turn down a a, a petition that I think a lot of lawyers were watching. Uh, Coming out of Wisconsin, um, there were some lawyers who were challenging the state's integrated bar and the dues that come with being part of that bar. Yeah, many states have these around the country, and the argument is that uh, these integrated bars that come with these mandatory dues violate, you know, a lawyer's First Amendment rights because the bar will take uh, public positions on maybe legislation that they disagree with. So Justice Thomas um, and Justice Gorsuch, or I should say Justice Thomas wrote a dissent that was joined by Justice Gorsuch, and they basically want to see these integrated bars go away. They want to extend the court's, you know, very controversial ruling in 2017 called Janus, um, which struck down Uh, mandatory dues for public sector employees, they want the Janus ruling essentially to be extended to integrated bars. Also this week, as as I think we mentioned last week, we've been watching what the court is going to take up um, in its conferences. And, you know, we've talked about how they have a number of Second Amendment cases that they've been eyeing, as well as a number of cases with the issue of qualified immunity, uh, an issue that I think has really risen to the forefront this week uh, after the tragic death of George Floyd and the protests that have ensued since then. Yeah, so just a quick refresher. Qualifying immunity is this doctrine that the Supreme Court created about 50 years ago, and critics say it kind of shields 
uh, law enforcement and makes it almost impossible to hold you know the police accountable for misconduct. Um, this is because you know it, it it has to do with this doctrine that says that they can't be held liable unless what they did was clearly established as illegal and critics say that that's almost impossible to prove uh, in court. So as we've talked about, uh, the justices have been sitting on these petitions for weeks now um, since, you know, as you say, Natalie, last week when they decided not to take any action on it, there's been just a raft of protests around the country that have broken out over the uh, tragic death of George Floyd. And the justices today will consider once again whether or not to set these cases um, for oral argument next term. So we'll be watching uh, on Monday to see whether or not they do. We'll be giving you an update next week, hopefully. Uh, But I think that just about wraps us up for today. Jimmy, thanks so much. Yeah. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Emily Brill, Vince Sullivan, and Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.